How are we doing? You look good. Handsome, beautiful congregation. Glad to be a part of it. Every day better here. Did Chad mention the kid who's getting double hip surgery? Okay, that put everything in perspective for me. I don't really have anything to complain about, actually. I'm pretty good. So, Jesus. I pray, first of all, for your presence to be here. I pray for each of us, Lord, that, like the psalmist said, you would search our hearts, see if there be any wicked way in us. There are ways that we think lead to life and it abundantly, but they lead to destruction. They're errors. Our enemy is so good, appearing like an angel of light, distracting, tempting to destroy us. And so we pray like the psalmist that you would search our hearts. Show them to us that your word would be a lamp. It would be that scalpel, sharp, discerning the thoughts and intents of our hearts and lead us in the way everlasting. We wanna walk in the way everlasting wasting our lives, investing them. So speak, may we listen, and we ask this in your name, amen. Amen. Anyone here hear, hear of Japanese, or excuse me, Chinese bamboo? Bamboo is very interesting. When it sprouts out of the ground, it's a grass, when it sprouts, it has all the cells it needs to grow like 100 feet tall. All that happens is those cells elongate mostly by water. That's why it can grow so fast. But Chinese bamboo is interesting. It takes five years for Chinese bamboo to grow. And for five years, nothing happens. You water, you fertilize, day after day, month after month, year after year, until the fifth year, suddenly it sprouts, and then it grows 90 feet in five weeks. Pretty amazing stuff. So the question is, did it grow 90 feet in five weeks or five years? Five years. Because if you stop watering and you stop fertilizing, it'll just die, right? So I can imagine like, Somebody going out day after day, week after week, month after month, watering dirt. And his neighbor's like, hey, bro, I've been seeing you do this for like five years. Are you okay? I need to pray for you, right? Sometimes life can feel like Chinese bamboo, can it? Where you're putting all this work and all this effort, all this water, all this fertilizer, and it just doesn't seem like anything's happening. And you're wondering what's going on. Well, in Nehemiah 6 and 7, we get a lesson from the bamboo plant, if you would, that you can do all this preparation. And Nehemiah did a ton of preparation. Chapter 1, he prays for months and months and months. He fasts. And he has a plan. He goes before the king, presents his plan to the king. The king says, okay. So he gathers together timber and money and finance and some leadership to go with him. And then they get this posse together and they cross 850 miles of desert on foot. 
They arrive in Jerusalem that has a broken down wall and burned up gates and the people are in great trouble. And he's got to rally these broken people together to rebuild the wall and to rebuild the gate. And they start to work. And there's attack from without. And there's attack from within. And there's problems. And there's human trafficking. And there's slavery. And there's issues. And he just battles through it all, right? He has put a ton of effort into this thing. And what we're going to see in chapter six and seven, there's no increase. Man, I put all this effort in, but wow, there's no increase. Sometimes in our life, we know that God has a good work for us. It's a promise of scripture, Ephesians 2.10. He's prepared good works for you individually to walk in. And you can have a passion for something and a desire to see it go. And then you can water and fertilize year after year after year. And there's nothing. Where's the increase? You can pray for a ministry that God's put on your heart. Prepare and plan. Put finances to it. Where's the increase? You can be praying for your marriage and watering and fertilizing it, but man, there's still problems in it. You can be praying for your kids where, man, they've gone astray and they're doing things I wish they weren't doing. Where's the increase? You can be praying for our city. and Where's the increase? You can be praying for your neighbor. Where's the increase? So in Nehemiah chapter six and seven, we get wisdom on what to do when it feels like, man, we're, we're in the five-year thing, watering and fertilizing, and there's no increase. What do we do? So let's check this out. It's brilliant. Nehemiah, chapter six, verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem where they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. The wall's finished, right? This is amazing. The project is completed early and under budget. It's the greatest miracle in the Bible right here, right? And just to give you a perspective on Nehemiah's wall, the wall was two and a half miles long. Average height of 40 feet and eight feet thick, built in 52 days. Right, that's crazy. Do you know how many tons of rock went into this wall? Yeah, neither do I, but it was a lot. <laughs> Anyone here build a house from the ground up? What did you get done in 52 days? You didn't get plans through the planning department, did you? You didn't move a piece of dirt. You might be able to build a doghouse in 52 days. This is super natural. Now there's a city where people will be protected, where they can go to worship Yahweh without being afraid of being robbed or mugged, where families, kids can play in the streets without fear. It's a new Eden. It's an outpost of heaven right here. It's brilliant. And the enemies of God are afraid. And it says they lost all their self-esteem. I love that. No self-esteem now. Two things are contagious, courage and fear. God's people had courage and the enemies had fear. 
You know how important verse 15 moments are for God's people? Where you get a win and the world sees, wow, that's a win. That's amazing. That God takes someone with a vision and he energizes that vision and rallies a people and incredible things happen. Man, we need a lot of verse 15s. And this building right here is a miracle. Do you know the story behind it? Praise God. Home bridging has great miracles. Praise God. But it's more than that. It's a single mom with four kids that because of God's people now have a home. Their kids are being mentored and loved and they have hope. It's a son or daughter that's addicted to drugs that because of Jesus and because of God's people, all of a sudden they get free from that addiction and they start to flourish and become good, solid members of a congregation of people that love Jesus. That's a miracle. It's a marriage that was done, gone, history. And because of God's people, Dick Worthington, Mark Scudset, because they love them and counsel them, all of a sudden, man, they're not just surviving, they're flourishing, right? You know what a good witness that is? Neighbors are like, what happened to you guys? You used to fight like rock stars day and night. Now our entertainment's gone. We got to get cable TV. What happened? Brilliant. Listen, don't stop building the walls. We need verse 15s. Don't stop building the walls. But here we are. Halfway through chapter six, the wall is done. How many more chapters are in Nehemiah? A bunch. We're really at the midpoint and the wall's done. So what's the rest of the book about? Like he's finished what he's supposed to do. Why is there more in Nehemiah? Because that's life, isn't it? You ever get done with life? You ever get to 100%? You ever get to perfection? You ever like, hey, I'm done, man. I'm perfect. No. There's lots of reasons why we'll never get there. I'll give you Nehemiah's reasons why. Look at verse 17. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah, these are the powerful leaders around Jerusalem, sent many letters to Tobiah. Does that name ring a bell in the book of Nehemiah? Good guy or bad guy? He's an evil, wicked man. Sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letter came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son Jehonahan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berediah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Why? Why isn't he done? because there's still a battle. There's never not going to be a battle in the Christian life. We are always swimming against the current of culture, the world, the flesh, and the enemy. Nehemiah's problem right here was bad marriages. God's people not marrying other God's people, God's people marrying the very enemies of God. And these marriages weren't because of love. They were an alliance between powerful people, like a lot of marriages back then. 
It was, hey, we're two tribes and we're kind of enemies, but here's the deal. I'll give my daughter, you give your son, they get married, they have grandkids, and because my grandkids are with you, I won't attack and kill you anymore. There were marriages for convenience, marriages that were a bummer, marriages that were not God's kind of marriage, that God wants, godly marriages that raise up a godly offspring. But these marriages were bad marriages. Bad marriages are a bummer. Man, these guys were fakes, right? They're double agents. They're a Judas. They look like something, but man, they're not. And it brings ruin. Man, I've done a lot of marriage counseling where that's happened. Man, I thought my husband was this. I thought my wife was this, but turns out she's not. Oh, be so careful. Be so careful who you marry, right? So these bad marriages were causing now problems, a battle inside. Who's our allegiance to? Is it to Tobiah or is it to Nehemiah? There's a battle. But secondly, if you look down at verse four of chapter seven, The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. They've got a great wall guarding a ghost town because no one's living in the city. The reason, the city had a really bad reputation. Downtown was boarded up they had 200 nights straight of Antifa riots there. So people just said, I'm out of here. I'm not living in this place anymore. So it had a bad reputation. No one wants to live there. And for God's people to flourish in this city, Nehemiah is coming to the realization, I got to do more than just build it and they'll come. I got to do more than just give it a good wall and a gate. Something else needs to happen. Building it and they will come does not work in the Christian world. Do you know that? Anyone here travel to Europe? For a while, I had a, a lot of business over there, and I'd go over to Europe, to Spain, to Italy, to England, just you name it, Sweden. And on Sundays, man, I went to churches. I'd go to these glorious cathedrals, beautiful, gigantic buildings, historic events took place in them. The acoustics were out of this world. And I would go there, they could seat a thousand people, but guess how many people would be in it? Five, eight, 10 of us, and that was it. Beautiful buildings with no one inside of them. There's a little warning for us. Stay really humble. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus in chapter five says this. He says, there are bad things that will keep you from the kingdom. Lust and anger, and he warns about them. And we know those. But in chapter six, Jesus says, there's good things done for the wrong reasons that will also keep you from the kingdom. Praying, giving, and fasting. Jesus says, if you do these things to be seen by man, if you're doing it to get an audience, if you're doing it for the wrong reasons, it gets you nothing. What he's saying there is, God isn't desperate and needy and clingy. Like, I need them to do this. No. So if my heart is wrong, even though it appears I'm doing the right thing, I'm just a Judas then. I'm a fake. And God says, I'm out. You can have it. Right? Ever been to a church that has all the right ingredients. Seems like all the right ingredients are there, but when you go, it's like, man, 
Something was missing here. It's like Elvis had left the building. There's no spirit there. Mm. Ah, we got to stay humble. We got to stay humble. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Doesn't matter how fancy the wall is, how beautiful the building is, apart from him, we can do nothing. It's why one of my prayers for us as a congregation is this verse. I pray it all the time for us. It's 1 Corinthians 14, 24 and 25. Listen to what it says. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, this is church. He is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. That's my prayer for this place. That the gift of prophecy, whatever, you, however, whatever category you wanna put that in, the teaching of God's word, the interactions that we have one to another, that, that kind of prophetic thing that when it happens correctly, when God is in this place, people are convicted and great things happen. Oh, we need to be a humble people knowing without God, man, we can do nothing. Without him, we can do nothing. You can build all the beauty you want. Without God, you can't do it. So that's what Nehemiah is facing right here. Man, I did all this effort, done all this prep, and no one's living here. So guess what Nehemiah does? He goes back to the drawing board. He does a couple things that are just wise. First thing he does is this. Look at verse one of chapter seven. Now, when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah the governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes, a neighborhood watch program. Here's what he does he begins to address genuine concerns. Why is anybody moving back to the city? It's got a great wall, got beautiful gates. Why? Well, number one, the city had bad management, had really bad management. I'm so glad as a culture, we've grown past that problem. Pray for me. So Sambalat and Tobiah had been running the place. They're thugs, they're, they're bad dudes. In chapter two, verse 10, if you were here for that, you remember that when Nehemiah had this goal of rebuilding and protecting the city and making it beautiful so that God's people could flourish, Sambalat and Tobiah says that they were mad that someone had come seeking the welfare of the people of Jerusalem. They wanted the people to stay in misery because that was big business for them. Man, if we keep them down and keep them in misery, that's good for our business. You know that misery is big business today? You get grants and funding and all this money for people's misery. It always makes me like a little wary when someone's business model is misery. Are you gonna try to solve that or not? 
These guys wanted no solution for their misery because they knew that's how we get all of our money. We don't want Jerusalem strong. We don't want it safe. We don't want it protected. We want it miserable. So Nehemiah pulls them out and he puts in two other guys. And he says, these are the qualities of the leaders that I want for Jerusalem for it to flourish. When you're choosing leaders, what qualities do you look for in them? When you're voting here in a couple of weeks, what qualities do you look for people? What do you look for? If a church is looking for a new pastor, what qualities do they look for in the new pastor to lead that congregation? Well, I know the answer to that one because the Hartford Institute for Religious Studies a couple years ago did this big survey of churches and said, when you're looking for a new pastor, what are the qualities that you want that pastor? Guess what they were? Number one, he needs to be funny. Number two, he needs to be under 40. That was the top two. Funny and under 40. I guess I'm out, man, I'm 51, sorry. You're fired. Doesn't matter if he's a heretic, he's funny, man. All right, he, well, it's, he just, it's great time. I know he's a heretic. What does Nehemiah say? He says, here's the two qualities I want. I want number one, for them to be faithful. 1 Corinthians 4.2, it is required. Not as recommended, not as a good idea, not something that you should work on. It is required for stewards to be found faithful. If you want to lead, you need to be faithful. What does that mean? I like this phrase. I think a generation or two or three ago used to use all the time. And it was the phrase that they would say this, my word is my bond. What does that mean? Perhaps you've seen a business and it'll drive by and it'll have their logo on it. And then underneath it'll say licensed, when we got the right stuff from the government, licensed and bonded. What does bonded mean? It means if I am unfaithful to finish that project or to do what the contract says I was supposed to do, there's a million dollars in an account to help pay for my unfaithfulness. Bonded. So years ago, when a man or a woman would simply say, my word is my bond, what they were saying is this, my word is worth a million bucks. I will keep what I say I will do. Psalm 15 puts it like this. Great little psalm. It says, who gets to sojourn in the tent of Yahweh? Who gets to come into God's tent? And it gives these qualities. In verse four, it says this, the one that makes an oath to his own hurt and keeps it. The one that says, my word is my bond. I don't care what this costs me. I don't care what this takes from me. I told you I would do it and I'm going to do it. God says, yes, yeah. Man, I want to be someone that on my gravestone, it says Matt's word was his bond. I failed at it at times and it breaks my heart. I don't want to fail at it anymore. I want people to say, if Matt said, he'll keep it. His word is his bond. But being faithful is not enough. The Nazi SS were faithful to Hitler and they did some of the most horrendous atrocities in history. It takes number two as well, God-fearers. These were leaders that said, I might have some authority 
but I am underneath God's authority. I might have some power, but I am underneath God's power, that there's an ultimate power that stands above me. That's so important. There's this book by Dostoevsky, great book, The Brothers Karamazov. And there's this, it's called The Inquisitor. It's like this long kind of conversation and it's really thick theologically. And then in that, there's this famous line that says this, without God and immortal life, all things are permitted. What Dostoevsky was saying was this, if you get rid of God and you get rid of eternal life for the soul, then guess what? You'll, you are capable of evil at a level that's unimaginable. That's what he's saying. When there's no authority, when there's no God, when there's, when there's no right or wrong, when every, everything is just jello, then anything's permitted. If you don't believe me, just look at Instagram. Right? Just anything's permitted now. Like, okay. Your truth is your truth, whatever it is. It's nuts. So Nietzsche, that famous existentialist, the guy that's infamous for saying this, God is dead. And right after his death, perhaps you know this, someone memorialized him in the New York subway by writing on the wall, spray painting, uh, God is dead, signed Nietzsche. The next morning when people came to that same subway, someone had added below that this line, Nietzsche is dead, signed God. Like, I love that. <laughs> but Nietzsche had this, hey, if we get rid of God and we get rid of eternal life, he said this, look out. Look out. Because the lust to dominate will take men's hearts. And they will do things because they can, because might becomes right. And just like the lion runs down and slaughters the antelope because he can, men will do the same thing. That they'll rise up what he called the ubermensch, the supermen, who have a power and they will have a lust to dominate. And he said, look out, the next 200 years after my life will be the bloodiest in history. Man, he was a prophet. Because we have the records written on the 20th century and ubermenches rose up, atheistic, no eternal life, nothing past this world, atheist, atheistic regimes, atheistic men like Stalin and Lenin and Pol Pot and Mao and Slobodan Milosevic, who those guys alone slaughtered a hundred million of their own people. Unprecedented. Why? No God. No one gets to tell me what to do. I'm the power. I'm the ubermensch. So David Bentley Hart, one of my favorite authors, he writes this about that whole idea. Quote, he says, we live now in the wake of the most, this word just gets me, monstrously, it doesn't feel like it fits, but he's more smart than me, he's got a PhD. We live in, now in the wake of the most monstrously violent century in human history, during which the secular order on both the political right and political left, freed from the authority of religion, showed itself willing to kill on an unprecedented scale and with an ease of conscience worse than merely depraved. If ever an age deserves to be thought of as an age of darkness, it is surely ours. No God or immoral, immortal life, all 
things are permitted. So Nehemiah says, what we need is faithful God-fearers. Man, good leaders, faithful God-fearers. I'm faithful, I'll keep my word. I work hard. And my moral compass isn't how I feel today or is it take the wind of politics or whichever way the culture is going or whatever is cool or whatever is virtue signaling. No, my moral compass is God and what God says. And I'm gonna stick with that period. Not the tyranny of the majority. Those are two great qualities. So he begins to address concerns. Okay, I got it. Right? Bad leaders, let's get some good leaders in. Number two, the concern was ignorance. Verse three, he has to actually tell them how to operate the new doors. Why does he need to do that? Because for 141 years, there was no doors, no gates to the city. No one knew how to use them. This is new technology for them. Generations had gone by without gates. So now that they got these gates, they're like, when do we open them? When do we close them? It's new technology. They've been lost. It'd be like this. Let's imagine an EMP bomb going off in America. Electromagnetic pulse bomb. And it just wipes out our communication, wipes out the internet, wipes out cell phones. And we need to get a message from Grants Pass to Washington, D.C. because bad things are happening on our coast. So we're like, how do we do that? And someone hands you this right here. You know what that is? Right? It's called a telegraph. This was cutting edge cell phone technology 141 years ago. It was amazing. You could send a message across the world with this right here. So you're given that. Who in here could operate this thing? Right? Hey, Siri. Hey, Telegraph. It doesn't work. Something's broken, right? That's what happened in Israel. 141 years. They didn't have gates. They'd lost the technology. So what Nehemiah does is he says, I'm going to give you some policies, some standard operating procedures on how to operate these gates now. He educates them. You're ignorant, right? Do you have standard operating procedures for your doors at home? You got kids? Hey, son, if you open the door and go through it, I want you to close the door. Were you born in a barn, right? At night, if there's a sound, if someone knocks at the door at 2 a.m., husband and wife, who's checking the door, right? If it's the wife, your husband needs to be educated. <laughs> Send him to Chad. He'll educate him, right? No, we already have stuff like that built in. They had none of it, so he's got to educate them. Here's what you do. You guys are ignorant. At times, sometimes, I think we're stuck because, man, we're ignorant of something. We got to go back to the drawing board. We got to look into it. Like, why isn't this working? Why am I stuck right now? Why am I watering and fertilizing, but nothing is happening? I've done all this prep. It's not working. And Nehemiah could have got mad at the people. Don't you know what I've done? I gave up everything. I gave up my career. I fundraises for you. I crossed a desert 850 miles. I fought battle after battle after battle for you. Why in the world are you in this city? What's wrong with you guys? He doesn't do that. You know what good leaders do? When there's problems, they listen. What's going on? The city has a bad reputation. Oh, why? Because there's bad government. Oh, okay. We don't know how to use these gates. Oh, okay. There's a reason that people weren't in the city. And Nehemiah, a good leader, listens. There's a reason 
There's a reason your wife is upset. And a good husband says, okay, I'm gonna listen. Here's why. We all have these biases in us. Like all of us have these things in our head that a lot of times we have no idea they're even working, but they're always working. So I, I just keep, like I'll read studies and they'll talk about some kind of a bias. I just keep a record of them. Here's my record right now. These are all biases that are working right now in every single one of our heads. It, it, you could spend hours and hours on any one of these. All of these are causing us to not see things the way they actually are. My favorite is called the Ikea effect. You know what that is? When you build something yourself, you believe it's worth a lot more than it actually is. I love that. Now I build it, man. That thing's a million dollars. Now it's about five bucks, bro. All of these are in our heads and they blind us. And so a good leader says, you know what? I'm probably not seeing things correctly right now. Let me step back. Let me step back. Hey, why does my neighbor hate me? Maybe I should go listen to him. Why are my kids upset at me? Maybe I should listen to them. Why is my wife upset? Maybe I should go talk with her. I'm telling you, a good, kind critic is worth a thousand complimenters. One that's kind and has your well-being, has your success in mind, that's the golden, golden. I love that Nehemiah also sets some singers here. Like, it doesn't make sense, right? He's got guards over the gates. He's got how to open, close the gates. He's got new government, but he's also, hey, I set some singers up. What? Singers, how do they fit into this, right? Neighborhood watch programs, open the gate here, close it at this time, new government, and we got a bunch of singers. You ever wondered why we sing in church? You ever wondered that? Right, those of us that grew up in church, we don't. I didn't either until my second wedding I ever did. It was here at Edgewater, talking to this couple. The, the man had grown up in Roy Masters. So different kind of world. So after like the third time, I said, hey, you got any questions for me? And the young man said, I have a question for you. I've been coming to church now for a year. He said, I, I, I can't figure out why you guys sing songs in church. And I'm like, well, it's obvious, right? That's what you do in church. But for a moment, I step back and I listen. And I'm like, well, that is interesting. Why do we sing songs? What other group gets together and like sings a song? What CEO has his board meeting? It's like, hey, before we jump into the agenda today, I just think we should take some time and just sing a song. Join in with me. Words will be on the PowerPoint. <laughs> it's Led Zeppelin, so over to heaven. Let's go. Right? You'd be like, you're fired, man. You're nuts. And yet, we just take it for granted. Why do we sing? Why is Nehemiah part of his rebuilding of the inside of this city that he knows has to be changed? Why is it? I got to point singers in here. Maybe it's because of this. Do you know the number one repeated command in the Bible? It's don't be afraid. Almost always followed by, because your God's with you. Do you know the number two command in the Bible? Hundreds of times, praise the Lord. Why does Nehemiah do this? He's like, man, I see this command over and over and over and over again. Praise the Lord. I want this city to be full of God's praise. I think sometimes we might have a blockage in our own heart or in ministry or in life or be whatever it is. And you know, the best 
most incredible weapon we have, not our intellect, not how great we are, not our wall building skills. The most important thing we could do in that moment is say, I'm gonna go apart. I'm gonna simply praise. Offer the sacrifice of the fruit of my lips. I don't know what's happening right now, Lord. I don't know why my heart feels this way. I don't know why there's this blockage in my marriage or with my kids or in the world right now, but I'm gonna go apart and sing. That might be the most important thing to ever do. Second command of scripture. Sometimes I think it drives the enemy outside of our city when we praise the Lord. It fills it up with, the Bible says this, the Lord inhabits the praises of his people. Why do we sing? Because we want God to be in here. Come inhabit our praises. Come be here. Drive out the evil from our gates right now. That might be the best way, most important thing you could ever do. All right, so Nehemiah listens well. Okay, let's change some things. And then he does something. He weeds out a problem. Look down at verse 61. Remember, Nehemiah's goal is to fill this city with people. But it's gotta be the right people. The following were those who came up from Tel Mila and Tel Harsha and Cherub and Adam and Immer. But they could not prove their father's houses nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Delilah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nekoda, 642. Also of the priests, the sons of Hobiah, the sons of Hacker, excuse me, the sons of Hakaz, the son of, sons of Barzaliah, who had taken a wife of the daughters of Barzaliah, the Gileadite, and he was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. Nehemiah says, sorry, no. I wanna fill this city. I want people in here, but, but I'm gonna be discerning. No. And Nehemiah had said yes to a lot of problems. It wasn't a problem of listening or biases here, right? Hey, yeah, let's get the gate thing figured out. Hey, yes, let's get leadership figured out. Hey, let's put, yep, let's put a neighborhood watch program in there. Oh, oh, absolutely, we need Levites. Oh yeah, we need some singers in there. He'd said yes to a lot of changes, but here he goes, no. Nope, these are the wrong group of people. A no is as important as a yes. In life, we have to learn to say no. No, I can't do that. You don't use everything people give to you, right? You don't do everything people ask you. You gotta have discernment that does not fit. The recycle bin as, is just as important as the rebuild bin. When David went out to face Goliath, he knew my skill is a slingshot. What did Saul try to do to David? Put my armor on. Do it like I would do it. Imagine if David had went and fought Goliath using Saul's armor. What would have happened to him? A sword instead of a sling. We wouldn't know his name. He knew when to say, ah, no, I can't take that. That's not the way that God has me. No. When I study, I only use 10% of what I study. 90% of it just goes in the recycle bin. I can't use that. That doesn't fit. You're either going to discern or disaster is going to hit you. You don't have to do everything or use everything people give you. Do you know that? When you do, here's what happens to you. I found these on the internet. Here's what happens when you use everything people give you. You end up with this. 
What is that? Man, someone gave me some tile for free. Honey, let's make a kitchen. Realtors, how are you selling that? Kitchen so loud you don't need coffee? He's just got stainless appliances, come on, right? Or how about this one? Guy got a bunch of free coffins. That's nice. Kid's safe, man. Sometimes you say, no, I can't use that. That will not fit. It's important because you have a priority. You know what you're trying to do. So here, I'll give you an example. It's about weekly. I get an email. I have a conversation with somebody. I get sent something where somebody with a great idea, a great ministry, they want to come up here and make a pitch to this congregation. And there's good things. I'm not saying they're bad things. A lot of them are great things. It's awesome. Okay, totally. But what would happen if I said yes to every single one of those? Man, you turn this stage into an advertising. You turn this stage into video after video. Serve, do this, more, 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 more. All good things. But my fear is we'd miss the main thing. So I tell them, and it's what I have said from the beginning of the construction of this place. I've said, I think there needs to be one place that is a sanctuary dedicated to God alone. That we just get rid of all distractions, every distraction we can. We just say, this is a place where God rules. This is a place set aside for his name. Now we're gonna do prayer. You know why we start out our service with prayer? Because Jesus says, my father's house shall be a house of, so it is, we start our service today saying, welcome Matt to you. God, we want you here. Why do we praise? Because God inhabits the praises of people. Why do we preach? Because the Bible says he comes in the volume of the book, it declares him. Why do we go to the table? Because it's the one thing that Jesus said, do this often in remembrance of me. Because this is a sanctuary and I'm gonna guard it. And I say no all the time to people. So if I've said no to you, not personal, I say no to a lot of people. Because it's my job to say, we gotta keep the main thing here. That doesn't fit. This place is sacred set apart for the glory of God alone. So Nehemiah smartly, hey, I know it's not working right now, but I gotta weed some stuff out. And then finally, finally, this is the launch. Look at verse 66. Verse 70. Now some of the heads of the father's house gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury a thousand derricks of gold. 50 basins, 30 priest's garments, and 50 minas of silver. And some of the heads of the father's houses gave into the treasury of the work, 20,000 derricks of gold, 22,000 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priest's garments. This chapter is the preparation for the launch of chapter eight. Chapter eight is the most ancient document of what happens in a corporate worship service to God. It's brilliant. It's the oldest record we have of what would take place when God's people came together for his glory. Can't wait till next week. It's a church service. The oldest recorded church service we have. Nehemiah chapter eight. And you know what I love about church? I love that it's free. What else do you do that's free? 
Can you go to a caveman football game for free? Nope. Is Amazon Prime free? Nope. Concerts free? Nope. I love that church is free. Anybody, everybody, you're welcome. But guess what? Somebody paid. Somebody paid. There's a whole bunch of people at the end of this chapter that were putting money in so that chapter eight could take place. A whole bunch of generous people giving. I love that. I love it. If you tally it up, it's $20 million. And today's, with inflation, probably 20 billion, but hey, 20 million. I love that events at Edgewater are free. So we're gonna have a soapbox derby this in about a month and a half. And I've talked to people in town that had heard about soapbox derbies and they're like, hey, how much is it for me to bring my family? You know what I love to say to them? Free 50, bro. Really? Free 50, man. I've done weddings here. And we get to talking to them and they're like, how much is it to do a wedding here? Because it's like five grand at a vineyard. You know what I love to say to them? Free 99, man. Really? Yep, free 99. Are you kidding? No. I'll tell you my favorite is when we get to use this place for a funeral for a family who's not a believer. And they come and they're like, what is it gonna cost us? And I say, nothing. It's our privilege to walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. And we have such an amazing staff here that puts together their pictures into a slideshow. That Megan comes up and sings worship on a Saturday when she's busy, blessing Blessing people that say, they got nothing here. They got no tie here at all. And we just bless them lavishly because there's a bunch of generous people that allowed it to be a blessing. And I can't tell you how many times I've gone out in our city and had somebody say, man, my brother-in-law lost. My mom died. This happened. And I came to a, a memorial service at your church. It was amazing. Thank you. Thank you for walking with my family that way. Because of your generosity, it's free. It's free. I love that. But perhaps you've noticed, I skip a large part of chapter seven. You know why? Let me read for you why. <laughs> okay. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Perish, 2,172. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Era, 652. The son, uh, sons of Perah, Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818. Yeah, I'm crying too, trust me. I can go on and on and on and on for the next about 12 minutes. Anybody want me to do that? <laughs> Why? It's the second time we have the same list. There's an Ezra too. Why do we have these long lists of names? Is it so moms can find a brilliant new name for a baby? Is it so that we can learn Hebrew? Is it to cause pastors to be embarrassed as they try to read through them all? Why are these long lists of names? If you've read the Bible, you know, there's all these long lists of names. What's the deal? Here's what it's telling us. God remembers. God remembers. In this chapter, we learn that God remembers what people do. You're a gatekeeper. 
You're a governor. You're a singer. You're a wall builder. God remembers what you do. Do you know the same promise is in the New Testament for you and me? Hebrews 6.10, listen to what it says. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and your love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Listen, God remembers what you do. God remembers when you made that meal for that widow and her six kids. God remembers that you did that. God remembers when you stop and pray for somebody out here in the sanctuary or back out in the entryway or in town. God remembers when you pray. God remembers that letter you wrote to that person in prison. God remembers when you went on the mission field and now how you care and love and pray for those people on that mission field. God remembers how you volunteered at the school, bringing light and love there. God remembers the foster care child that you took in. God remembers when you cleaned the gutters. I can go on and on. God remembers what you do. Number two, God remembers what you gave. That's the end of this chapter. I love it. It says 67 priest garments. Not like, I think it was like 70 or so. It's an exact number, right? You don't come to 67 as an estimate. It is exactly God remembers what you give. And then thirdly, God remembers your name. That's why there's so many lists. God's not distant, far away. God, God is a personal God that remembers your name. That's why there's lists. And there's another list of names in the Bible. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And that Lamb's Book of Life is really important. Listen to what Revelation 21 says about it. That there's a new city, a new Jerusalem, not the one Nehemiah rebuilt, but it's a new Jerusalem that Jesus himself has built. And it has walls and it has 12 gates around it. Now listen to what this says about this new city, Jerusalem. But nothing unclean will ever enter it. These gates are closed to evil, to rape, to murder, to lust, to greed, to destruction, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. It's closed to people who are evil, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The ticket in to New Jerusalem is simple. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? That's your ticket in. Gates are open. You can prove your genealogy unlike those ones in Nehemiah who could not. No, my name's written. How important is this list? Listen to what Jesus says about this list. It's Luke chapter 10. He sent out his disciples. They go out, they do these amazing things for Jesus. And they return, and this is what happens. The 72 return with joy. They're stoked. They've been used. They've done great things for Jesus' name. Saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. A little heavy there, Jesus, come on. We're joyful. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this 
that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You know what Jesus says? Listen, as important as it is what you do, as important as it is what you give, the most important thing is, where's your name? Disciples, don't get your identity from being able to cast out a demon. Don't get your identity from having a PhD in theology. Don't get your identity from being a praise leader or a pastor or in ministry or a prophet. That's all sand, it'll shake. Because one day I won't be a pastor. One day my mind will fail me. I won't be able to remember anything. It's coming quicker than I anticipated. And if my identity is rooted in any one of those things, man, I am shakable. I'm, I'm on sinking sand. So Jesus says, this is how you become stable and unmovable and bulletproof. Remember this, where your name is written, that God remembers. And he promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's unshakable. That's how important that list is. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Is it written? Have you, have you believed in your heart the Lord Jesus Christ? He is Lord, he's the King. He's Jesus. He is my Savior. He is Christ the Messiah, the one predicted from Genesis 3. Have you believed on him in your heart? Have you confessed with your mouth that God has raised him from the dead? That's the ticket to getting your name written in the Lamb's book of life. That's the ticket to being adopted into his family. That's the ticket to becoming his eternal son, his eternal daughter, that he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, that I have a hold of you, you are in my hand, and no man can snatch you out. That's the ticket. That's how the gates of New Jerusalem open to you and me. You're in the register. God remembers your name. 